As we've been studying the Apostle Paul and his bringing of the gospel to Athens in the book of Acts, chapter 17, which is where we're at today, very end of it, we have seen that as he walked the streets of the city, he came across not only many temples to the Greek gods, but statues dedicated to many more. And beyond that, which I haven't mentioned before, the streets of Athens were lined with walls. And cut into these walls were small niches for shrines or votives to even more lesser gods. We all know of the 12 major gods of um, the Greeks, Zeus, Aphrodite, Apollo, Ares, Artemis, Athena, Demeter, Dionysus, Hades, Hephaestus, Hora, Hermes, Hestia, Peritona, and Poseidon. So if you kept track there, if you've ever read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams wrote three novels, a trilogy. Then he wrote a fourth, and it was the fourth book in the trilogy. And he finally ended up with six books in the trilogy. That's much like these 12 major gods. For some reason, there's 15. But every reference book says there were 12 major gods, and then they give me the names, and there's 15. So there were 15 major gods there. Now, I've told you before that they had hundreds of gods. Well, I in the uh, Greek pantheon, but I misspoke. We had these 12 or 15 major gods. But then there were lesser gods, primordial gods, as they're called, 18 of them. And there was a, a god of the sky and a god of darkness, a god of time, a god of inevitable inevitability, okay? Then there were the Titans. 31 of them, including Epimetheus, the god of afterthought and excuses, okay? I want you to pay attention to these gods, okay? He's the god of afterthought and excuses. Next came the Gigantes, the giants, 10 of them, and 26 lesser giants, they also worshipped 127 personified concepts, um, such as the spirit of sadness, misery, and poison. Okay? That's, that's one. His name was Oculus. And then there was Ergia, the spirit of laziness, indulgence, and sloth. Okay? I'm not making these up. There were 36 deities of the underworld. Uh, 68 sea gods uh, who were in charge of among them sea monsters or storms or sailors in distress. They had 52 sky deities, gods in charge of winds, a god of the morning star, god of astrology. There were 82 of what they called rustic deities. Aristeus was God of beekeeping. Okay? Corymbus was God of the fruit of the ivy. Now, if you're like me, you probably didn't know that ivy had fruit. Because I didn't know, but Corymbus was the God of the fruit of the ivy. There were 14 agricultural gods. Siamites was the demigod of the bean. Okay? 
demigod of the bean. Eunostus was goddess of the flour mill. Now, for a, for a birthday or an anniversary, I gave Aaron a flour mill. So, one can just call her my goddess of the flour mill, right? Um, there were 30, there were 12 health deities. There were six sleep deities. There were 15 charities, which were goddesses of charm, beauty, nature, and human creativity. There were 30 horai, uh, goddesses of natural order. 18 muses of such as song, poetry, history, dance, and comedy. And then 35 other deities, just listed as other deities, such as uh, Eratopotes, the god of unmixed wine. And I do not know what they were going to mix it with. Uh, there was Matin, demigod of the kneading of dough. And Rapso, the minor goddess of sowing. Don't get me started on the deified mortals like Achilles, Heracles, or Psyche. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago that the Athenians, is, you know, worship more than 300 gods, deities, whatever you will call them. The tally actually comes in from several sources at 3,142. That's how many they had. So when I say that there was a, well, there was a god for every human action, emotion, activity, or whim. A god for every season, weather, and temperature. When I mentioned that there was a wind god, well, there wasn't a wind god. There was a god of the north wind, and of the south wind, and of the east wind, and of the west wind. And there was a god of the northwest wind, and the southwest wind, and the southeast wind, and southwest wind. There might have been a god of the north by northwest wind, but I didn't find that, okay? There were gods for every thought, including dreams. There was a god of the dream, and there was a god of the nightmare. Thus, it should be no surprise that the Apostle Paul stumbled upon an altar to the unknown god. Because perhaps there was a human activity that hadn't been discovered yet, and that god would fill that spot. It was humanly impossible, okay, to personally remember, much less worship, all the Greek gods. Much like our ongoing study in Genesis, where God, through the author Moses, is correcting a corrupted world history of the various ancient Mesopotamian nations, Paul here is correcting the Athenians' worship of 3,142 false gods by introducing them to the one true God, creator of all. And we have to bring us right back to where we are, uh, starting in verse 22, and I will not dwell on this, but it's just bringing us to where we left off. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and this makes a lot more sense now, the objects of your worship, 
I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually not far off from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. So now we pick up from there with the next five verses. Um, Verses 30 through 34, Acts 17, which read, The times of ignorance, and I know that we covered this briefly, this first verse, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, "Ah, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. And just a small grammatical error here. It says some men joined him and then named a woman. And Greek scholars have used this passage to point out the only example they have of man here being used as mankind and counting a woman in there, much as we, another digression, much as we call mankind man, um, Aaron and I were going through this, I said, Aaron, do you know what, uh, uh, you know, mankind has always meant male and female in the English language. There was a English word for woman, which was with, where you get housewife from, okay? Man was were, where we get werewolf from, okay? So those who demand that we uh, say fireman and firewoman or firefighter do not understand their own language. Just a brief aside there, guys. That has nothing to do with the sermon. Just something we ran into. Okay. We covered verse 30a last week. The times of ignorance God overlooked. The pagan nations were left alone for millennia unlike the Hebrews. But now Paul says in verse 30b, he, God the creator of all, commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance was an unknown concept to the Greek mind. Their false gods that they worshipped indulged in the same vices they themselves did. 
Repentance was an... Un, uh, and if your gods are immoral, if the gods you have invented are immoral, what's the problem if human beings are immo immoral also? I was mentioning the, a while back that in a demon-possessed land such as Greece was, being demon-possessed, like the slave girl was, is a virtue, okay? So, if your gods are immoral, you being immoral also is a virtue. It's what you're supposed to do. Greek gods were invented to give cover to man's wickedness. If the gods get drunk, what's the big deal if a man does? Sexual orgies were fine for the deities they worshipped. The proper way then to worship such gods was through things such as temple prostitution, which was practiced in Greece. The Greek gods were simply an invention from man's desires. God and man shared the same imperfections, the same, quote, sins. But were they sins at all? The Athenian behavior was approved by their gods. Paul says in Romans 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, Paul is not here saying that ignorance of the law means you don't sin, just that you don't know that you're sinning. It also doesn't mean that you're not responsible for your sins before God and thus escape judgment. So when I say that God had left them alone, it does not mean that they would not ultimately come before God. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who did not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Ignorance of the law for the Gentiles, and as they say in American jurisprudence, is no excuse. It is simply ignorance. But knowing God's law exposes you to your sin. Verse 31 was also news to the Athenians. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That was a revelation to the Greeks that God had decreed a judgment day and every person will be righteously judged. You remember that in Stoic philosophy, Stoic philosophy was a form of pantheism, Everything was a part of God. They did not believe that in a creator God, and they did not believe that they were going to be judged by a creator God. And in Epicurean philosophy, 
though there was a God that created, he did not concern himself with human affairs. He created and then moved on, like winding a clock and just letting it run, okay? Letting it go tick through time. That's what they thought was happening. But here Paul proclaims to them a God that not only created all, but a God who is planning to judge everyone on an already planned day, verse 31b says, by a man whom he has appointed. So the date and the judge had already been appointed by God. And that judge would be righteous. And the proof that this man was God's appointment of this judge. And the proof of that in God's appointment of this judge was this in verse 31b. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, to say that the idea of resurrection from the dead was a foreign concept to the Athenian, to the Greek mind, would be inaccurate. It had often been a topic of philosophic debate, and it had always been roundly rejected. Uh, Pliny the Elder, uh, first century Roman scholar, but the Greeks followed the Roman philosophers also. Pliny the Elder, Roman soldier, author, philosopher, called the idea of bodily resurrection a sweet but naive view. He went on to say that these are fictions of childish absurdity and belong to a mortality greedy for life increasing. And he finished with a saying a plague on this mad idea that life is renewed by death. Okay? They thought about it, but they rejected it. The Greek playwright, uh, Cicero, Cicero. I always have to say Cicero because my kids got it through me. But Cicero wrote, the Stoics say that the soul will endure for a while after death. They deny that they will endure forever. The Greek playwright Aeschylus, okay, and um, Aeschylus wrote about the founding of the Areopagus, okay, and at the very founding of the Areopagus, Aeschylus has um, Apollo say in the play uh, Eumenides, when the dust has soaked up the blood of a man once he has died, there is no resurrection. Okay? Thus, Paul's preaching is a direct rebuttal to all the Greek philosophy had not only debated, but had already rejected his folly. And here he is preaching to them the judgment of all mankind by a man who has died and come back to life. So it comes as no surprise when Luke records in verse 39, uh, 32a, now when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked. Now the word mocked here suggests that those at the Areopagus rejected Paul's message. Indeed, no church in Athens resulted from his ministry there. 
Okay, there was, there was no letter to the Athenians as there is to the Corinthians. When he mentions the first fruits of Achaia, which is the province that Athens was listed in, he's speaking of Corinth, who was located in the same province. So the first fruits in Achaia, he is not referring to what we're about to see. Verse 32b says, but others said, we will hear you again on this. Now, that might sound promising, but what it really was, was a polite, a polite rejection. They said to Paul, hey, you know, we will hear you again on this. And remember, what Paul's there doing is explaining to them, to the leaders of the city, what it is he's preaching, because he has to have their approval to continue preaching. And what they say is, we will hear you again on this. Now, though he was not stoned, not driven from the city, neither did the council of leading citizens approve his teaching. The teaching of these controversial things would be set aside for another time. And verse 33 says, So Paul went out from their midst. A uh, little bit anticlimactic there, wasn't it? Uh, at least it avoided the drama of most of his departures from cities, you know, being let down at midnight in a basket, uh, being stoned and thrown out of the city gates, the beatings, the violent mobs, all things considered, this should be counted as a roaring success. And it's not as though this outreach met with no success whatsoever. Because verse 34 says, But some men joined him and believed, among who were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So despite being stopped from preaching, a small group heard the word Paul preached, including a woman, and she's lost to history, we have no idea, what became of her in either scripture or in secular history. But a member of the council of the Areopagus, Dionysus, also believed. Church history names him as the um, first bishop of Athens when the church does eventually form. Because with the success that Paul has in the rest of Greece, eventually Christianity does come to the Athenians. The real surprise in this passage is not that the Areopagus politely told Paul to go away. The real surprise is that anyone at all heard his message and then believed. And it's not just that these few men and the woman Damaris turned from their traditional beliefs and trusted God, because look at what this entailed. Instead of worshiping 3,000 142 individual deities and being responsible to none of them, they place their faith in one, the creator God of the universe. While, while there was no practical way to actually worship 3,000 plus gods, one God was perfectly capable of being worshipped and being responsible to that one God with your life and your thoughts and your actions was quite a change for a person to make back then. 
I came across an essay in Front Page magazine. Uh, it's an online magazine. I think it used to be a real magazine. It was written by a uh, Jewish writer and classicist. And it just, uh, it was a defensive, believe it or not, uh, uh, Christian anti-Semitism by a Jew. And I'm not going to get into that aspect of it, but she talks about ancient Greece. And she says this, she says, Pagan gods like Mars, Dionysus, and Venus sanctified human appetites for war, domination, drunkenness, and lust. Listen to that again. The pagan gods did not hold man responsible for sins. Instead, they sanctified, made those sins holy in the eyes of the pagan Greeks. Okay? Pagan gods did not hold man responsible for their sins. And when your so-called gods make your sins holy, what is the common man supposed to do with that? Going on, she says, Pagan values champion the rich, powerful, young, healthy, and beautiful, and okayed the sacrifice of the weak, poor, and the foreign. Does not that sound the, like the exact opposite of the teachings of Jesus? Roman pagans could invoke their deities at the orgy or at grisly gladiatorial spectacles. Spartans habitually murdered, uh, murdered helots, which I had to look that up, it's serfs, basically serfs. Spartans habitually murdered helots and their own children, and Spartan gods approved. Hmm. In the country today, Americans murder their children, and the god of this world approves. Just like people today, ancient Greece and their gods celebrated the rich. They celebrated the powerful, the young, the healthy, and beautiful at the expense of the poor and the weak. And into this culture comes Paul, talking of a god who was crucified, died, and was buried completely the antithesis of everything that their gods said were important. She finishes with the Jewish God, in contrast, was the advocate of the outcast, of the poor, of widows and orphans. The Jewish God reminded believers to discipline their appetites. Too many, and this is the punchline, too many including the Athenians. The Jewish God was a buzzkill, okay? Humanity was happy until the Jews came along and ruined everything. And that is how the pagans saw it. The humanity was happy until the Jews came along and ruined everything with all that talk about one God, sin, and guilt, according to the neo-pagan worldview. A buzzkill. When Aaron and I got married, we had both grown up in the church and we had both gotten away from it in college. And when we got married, Aaron said, you know, I think it's time that we get back to church. And, and so we went to a, a church structure, theology that she was familiar with. And 
you know, we were serious enough to really want to invest the time, so we went regularly to Sunday services and to Sunday school. And one Sunday, and they almost lost me for a long time on this, and one Sunday, the Sunday school teacher, a woman, and I'll tell you a little bit of what's going on, said, you know, sometimes I wish I wasn't a Christian so I could have fun. She says, my friends go out to bars on Saturday nights and I've got to come to church in the morning. And I thought, you wish you weren't a Christian so you could have fun. God really is a buzzkill, isn't he, for some people? Oh, that's all I can say. You see, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. People still believe the God of the Bible is a buzzkill. He doesn't want us to have any fun, right? Not like the 3,142 pagan gods wanted them to have fun. So what exactly did Paul bring to the table in Athens that would very shortly supplant 700 years of Greek culture. This um, Jewish philosopher, classicist, finishes by saying, the Bible's unique status is immediately apparent to anyone reading any, of the, uh, any other ancient culture's scripture. And this gal has read them all because that's her field of study. She says, the ancient Greeks produced peerless plays and tales Ancient India produced probing explorations of life's big questions. Neither of these exceptionally articulate civilizations even begins to approach the Bible for depth, breadth, and worldwide influence. A tiny group of scrappy and beleaguered desert herders produced the Psalms, the commandments, archetypal characters and struggles, minimalist sketches like that of the contrast between Cain and Abel that confound and inspire for thousands of years the soaring rhetoric of the disquisition between Job and God himself as they debate the nature of suffering and a salvation narrative powerful enough to reach international hearts, hurts, and hopes. It was this salvation narrative that Paul is bringing to the pagan lands, to, to the Greeks and their thousands of gods. Belief in the gods of the Greeks ensured a life of dissolution and immorality. And when that life came to an end, when the dust soaks up the blood of a man, there is no resurrection. A resurrection, the very idea of which was a sweet but naive idea that your soul will not endure forever. Jesus proclaimed resurrection as a fact by coming back from the dead himself. The soul is immortal. The life that we will go to when we pass from this life to life everlasting is what Paul was preaching. And it's real. And it's the only real thing there is among the beliefs of the world. Let's close in prayer.